The first reading is from Isaiah 43, 18-21. Don't remember the prior things. Don't ponder ancient history. Look, I'm doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert, paths in the wilderness. The beasts of the field, the jackals and ostriches will honor me because I have put water in the desert and streams in the wilderness to give water to my people, my chosen ones, this people whom I have formed for myself, who will recount my praise. The second reading is from Acts 11, 1 through 18. The apostles and the brothers and sisters throughout Judea heard that even the Gentiles had welcomed God's word. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. They accused him. You went into the home of the uncircumcised and ate with them. Step by step, Peter explained what had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying when I had a visionary experience. In my vision, I saw something like a large linen sheet being lowered from heaven by its four corners. It came all the way down to me. As I stared at it, wondering what it was, I saw four-legged animals, including wild beasts, as well as reptiles and wild birds. I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I responded, absolutely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice from heaven spoke a second time, never consider unclean what God has made pure. This happened three times, then everything was pulled back into heaven. At that moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Spirit told me to go with them, even though they were Gentiles. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered that man's house. He reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and summon Simon, who is known as Peter. He will tell you how you and your entire household can be saved. When I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as the Spirit fell on us in the beginning. I remembered the Lord's words, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then who am I? Could I stand in God's way? Once the apostles and other believers heard this, they calmed down. They praised God and concluded, so then God has enabled Gentiles to change their hearts and lives so that they might have new life. When you hear the word church, what do you think of? A people? A building? Maybe a Zoom window? And when we say the word church, what do we mean? Church can mean so many things to so many people. It's more than a six-letter word. Six letters can't create community. Six letters can't send people around the world. Six letters can't raise funds to educate children or build hospitals. Six letters can't inspire people to move beyond boundaries and barriers to live and love radically, boldly, compassionately. Or can they? The church is simultaneously a building and yet more than a building, a people, and yet more than a people. 
a six-letter word, and more than a word. The church is a symbol. The church is a symbol, and as a symbol, it shapes us and forms us and informs how we see ourselves in the world. The church is a symbol. And we'll come back to that. Good morning. My name is JJ Warren, and I am so excited to be here this morning. Now, as many of you may know, before the pandemic began, I was on a cross-world circuit ride, visiting United Methodists in over 17 states across the U.S. and beyond. I've had the wonderful opportunity of meeting with United Methodists virtually or in person uh, in Norway, in the Philippines, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, in Germany, and all over the world. And it's just been a joy for me to be able to see United Methodists that are reconciling and seek a church that is a church for all people all around the world. And now you are part of that as well. So in this togetherness of these reconciling folks around the world, I hate to preach and run. So if you'd like to be part of this togetherness of reconciling people that I've met all around the world, I keep everyone informed once in a while, uh, typically about once a month or whenever I feel like sending an email blast. And I send an email to all of these Methodists that I've met around the world so that everyone knows that they're not alone. Whether you're in Oregon or Louisiana or Kenya, Ethiopia or Norway, you know that you're not alone. And I do this through that email blast. So if you want to be part of this email blast, and I am trying to be a better Gen Zer, uh, then you can go ahead and take out your cell phone. Take out your cell phone and you can text the number 66866. Don't worry, it's not three sixes. That was a joke. I hope you're laughing at home. So you'll text the number 66866 and you'll send the word reclaiming. Reclaiming. So you'll text that word to that number and we'll become instant best friends and you'll be part of that um, every so often newsletter blast in an email. So while you're texting away and as we become new best friends, I wanna share with you a story that I share towards the end of my book, Reclaiming Church. And it's about an 80 year old man who I visited when I was in California. Now. Two years ago, and the pandemic has made time even more of an illusion than it already was for me, about two years ago, as I was just beginning this cross-world circuit ride, I was visiting 30 churches in three months, and California, I was there for three weeks, driving all up and down the coast with a wonderful person named Izzy Alvaron, who works for RMN, who you might know. And we were there in California, in Northern California, and this 80-year-old man came up to me after the service. And as he was leaving, he looked at me and he said, thank you for your courage. And I looked back at him and I said, no, thank you. Without you and your generation, there's no way that I could be here in my gay pink sport coat, traveling the world, telling the church to be more inclusive of LGBTQ plus folks. And as I said this, he looked back and he smiled, and then he said, it was difficult. And he started to share some of his story with me. He said, when the Vietnam War started, I prayed that I'd be drafted. 
And he continued, I figured that if I died over there, then my family would never learn that I was gay, and they wouldn't feel shame in our community. He looked down, and, and then he looked back up at me, and he said, for some reason I survived, and I came home. And when I got back, I tried everything that I could, drugs, alcohol, sex, even the Mormon church. And after years with that church, after years of conversion therapy, the elders gathered and they asked me, do you want to be excommunicated? And as he thought about what he said next, he chuckled to me. And he said, I told them it was their choice. I had tried everything that they told me to do to change who I was, but I was still me. And that's when I walked into a Methodist church, he said. And for the first time in his life, he knew that he was good. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, I knew that I was good just as I am. And I've stayed ever since. And his story, I think, is part of our story as the United Methodist Church. It's, it textures the symbol of what church means for me. Despite the disagreements within our denomination at the grassroots level, United Methodist churches have been providing safe havens for queer folks for decades. While some in the United Methodist Church continue to push us away, the number of those who seek to build beloved community, a beloved community that includes LGBTQ plus people and people of color and the disabled and women in ministry and refugees and immigrants, this number is growing exponentially. The river of justice is rolling down, and the mighty stream of righteousness is flowing ever forward. That man's testimony is part of our story. And it's unique, but it's not new. The church, as a place of radical boundary crossing and relationship building, is part of our tradition and our DNA. This morning, you heard a scripture from the book of Acts, and before we get into it, my uh, Sarah Lawrence College liberal arts nerd is going to step in for a minute. The location of the book of Acts itself is important for us. Its location within the canon is important. It was probably written towards the end of the first century after the death of Paul, and it serves as a transition document. As you know, as good Methodists, the New Testament begins with four books called the Gospels, and they are a unique genre of their own, a gospel. And then we have this collection of epistles, of letters, only seven of which were probably written by Paul. And in between these two genres of gospel and epistle comes the strange book of Acts. Despite being written by the same author of the gospel according to Luke, it's not a gospel. It's neither a gospel nor an epistle. And it attempts to detail what happens between the time of Jesus's resurrection and the churches that the epistles are addressed to. Now, out of all of this, what's important for our examination today, and I promise I won't get too nerdy, is that this book was specifically written within a context of change. 
Not only is its location a transitional one between two genres, but the time in which it was written was a time of transition and change. Paul, the leader of the early church, one of them had died. The church was growing beyond just the Jewish followers. There were debates about who's in and who's out and which rules needed to be followed and by whom. And it's in the midst of this chaos and these debates that this letter enters. And, and of course, Paul responded to some of these questions. But, but what about Peter, the rock, Cephas, Rocky? Clearly, the early Christ followers needed direction. Paul had died, and, and so into this silence, into this liminal space, into this chaos, the author of Acts enters and tells us a story about Peter. And so the author enters into this time of transition and confusion and chaos, and they seek to provide guidance. And they tell us a story of Peter, and in the passage that we read today, Peter is standing before the church authorities in Jerusalem, and he's sharing his, his reasoning for including more people into the community. And now we're told in this passage that a military leader named Cornelius was inspired to send for Peter. And while the men that he sent were on their way, Peter receives a strange vision. A sheet, we're told, rolls down from high up above, and on it are all sorts of animals sprawled across it, including those that were considered unclean. And the story goes on that Peter heard a voice command him to kill and eat. And now as a vegetarian, I personally find this offensive, but you know, it's, it's a voice. Who am I to wrestle with it long time ago? And, and so this voice tells Peter to kill and eat all of these animals. But like a good rule follower, Peter says, no, Lord. I've never broken the rules about the clean and unclean. I won't do it. Even though these rules are in the book, I, I seek to follow them. And, and even though a voice which he believes is God is calling him to move beyond the rule book, Peter's uncomfortable. And so a second time the voice says back, what God has made clean you must not call profane. All of a sudden, without a text, Peter isn't given a text that says Moses deemed all animals all of a sudden clean without a text given to him, just a vision and a word. Peter is informed that God has made clean what the rules called profane. What God has made clean, we must not call profane. Paul says that we were justified by faith alone, right? Not by anything, including our sexuality. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, made clean not by anything that we did, but by the love of the divine. What God has made clean through love, the church, must not call profane. This is the message that the author of Acts thought was essential for the church as it was in a time of confusion and transition and chaos. 
And this is the message I believe that's essential for us today as United Methodists around the globe who find ourselves similarly in a time of transition and chaos. And we, like the author of Acts, can respond to this moment with the spirit of the gospel. We can say, boldly and prophetically and confidently that God is love, that God is reconciling all things through love, and that God will make all things new, including the United Methodist Church. And we have the opportunity to join in this ministry of reconciliation. And the church, the church today, is the body of Christ as a symbol. We offer ourselves like the body of Christ for healing and reconciliation. As Brian Stone, the evangelism professor at Boston University School of Theology, where I have the privilege of attending seminary, as Brian Stone wrote in his groundbreaking book, Evangelism After Christendom, the offer of Christ is instead the offer of a peoplehood, of a participation in a body. It is the offer of a way and of a formation by the Spirit into that way, end quote. The offer of Christ isn't something that the church can withhold from queer people. The offer of Christ is the offer of a peoplehood, of a participation in a body of a way. To reclaim church requires reclaiming the very symbol of church, what people think of and how they understand church, because the way we think of church influences our decisions. For example, if church is merely a place where we go to pray a simple prayer that guarantees us a life after this one, then the demands of social justice are unnecessary. But if the church is a formation of a way of being in the world, and in particular a way of living and loving boldly and beyond boundaries and barriers, like the story of Peter and the Gentiles, then being part of the church demands that we're engaged socially, advocating with the oppressed and breaking down the barriers that exclude LGBTQ plus people from the United Methodist Church today. When we live into this symbol of the church, we reclaim what it means to be church, and we transform the world and church together. As the feminist theologian Elizabeth Johnson wrote, the symbol of God functions. The symbol of God functions. And I might apply that to our study today, that the symbol of church functions too. It informs how we see ourselves, how we behave in the world and organize ourselves as an institution. How we understand the symbol of church matters because it informs how we understand ourselves. So how will the symbol of church function for you? 
How might the symbol of the United Methodist Church function as a catalyst for justice around the world, as a catalyst for boundary-breaking love, the same love that Jesus embodied, that Peter testified to before the church authorities, and that we are working toward today? How will the symbol of church function for you? As the prophets of old said, look, God is about to do a new thing. And I believe that we are doing a new thing too. Amen.